0: First Samuel thirteen, starting in verse one, Saul lived for one year and then became king and When he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose three thousand men of Israel, two thousand were with Saul in Mimash in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that it was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore and multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beit Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "'Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings.' And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, "'What have you done?' And Saul said, "'When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, "'Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord.' So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beit Horan. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboyim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about six hundred men, including Ahijah the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mikmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beit Aven. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aishalom, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give thumim." And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The f- name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Now, 1 Samuel 13 verse 1 is a rather curious verse. Uh, depending on your translation, the ESV actually has has changed its mind over the years. Uh, The older version that I have, which I didn't check the Pew Bible to find out what's there, but is that Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. But the online version of the ESV has what I read, namely, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Which... By the way, that's a very good translation of the Hebrew text. Uh, it's a very strange translation of the Hebrew text. Saul was a year old when he became king. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's actually one of the most famous problems of chronology in the scriptures, because what do you do? Uh, In Acts 13, Paul says that Israel asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that Saul reigned for 40 years. Neither the Hebrew nor the Septuagint text of 1 Samuel 13 has anything more than two years. Now, many people think that the author originally wrote how old Saul was when he became king, but the number somehow dropped out, because... Two years is not sufficient for all the events of 1 Samuel 13 to 31. So many scholars say, oh, it must have been something in two years. Maybe it was 42 years. And many translations have tried to resolve the dilemma by making up an age for Saul and making up a length of his reign. I'd suggest that's not a good idea. Let's not make up numbers because we think they're missing. Let's just suggest for the moment that there's nothing wrong with the text, that it actually means what it says. Saul, and literally translated, it, Saul was the son of a year when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Well, that's actually what just happened in our previous chapters. Because in 1 Samuel 10, verse 9, we're told that God gave to Saul another heart, that he had become another man. If 1 Samuel is talking about Saul's spiritual identity, then in fact, the new Saul was in his first year when he began to reign, and he appears to have reigned for approximately two years before he apostatized. So it's actually true to say that Saul was a year old when he began to reign. He was in his first year because he had become a new man just in in the previous few months, He had had received a new heart, and now he reigns for two years, and then he abandons that path. And we're even told that the spirit went forth from Saul, and an evil spirit from God came to plague him. So if, in this case, there's no problem with the text. Now, I'll grant, it's a highly unusual text. There is no other instance where the king is given a spiritual birthday, But on the other hand, there's no other instance where a king is given such explicit spiritual birth in the text. So I would suggest that if we take this the way it's written, it actually makes sense of the text that we have. Now, it doesn't explain Paul's claim in Acts 13, because why does Paul say that God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years? If there is nothing in the book of Samuel, to tell us how long Saul reigned, then how do we know, how did Paul know? Forty years. Actually, this is part of what I think is going on in, remember, Saul of Tarsus, as he's preaching about his distant ancestor, or relative at least. Because throughout chapter 13, Luke has referred to him as Saul of Tarsus. Throughout Acts 13. Acts 13. Saul of Tarsus is named four times in Acts 13, and in verse 9, we're told that Saul is also called Paul, and then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and preaches a sermon about Saul the king. Saul of Tarsus was the tribe of, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's some relation to King Saul. He's certainly named after King Saul. Now, It's important to pay attention to names. Um, I, I didn't mention this last week, but it's worth noting that King Saul defeated Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash means serpent. King Saul starts his ministry as the king of Israel by crushing the head of the serpent. This is a great start. Is he going to be the seed of the woman who is going to deliver God's people and bring salvation? And yet, in our text for tonight, we hear that King Saul does not continue in that path. He had a high calling. He was called by God to be his servant in going before his people and delivering them from their enemies. In Acts 13, his namesake is called to be God's servant in bringing the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. I suggested last week that the narrative of Saul of Gibeah in Benjamin is either the story of the redemption of Benjamin or a bitter irony as Benjamin goes from bad to worse, or is it a bit of both? Do you think that Saul of Tarsus was unaware of this story? The story of the redemption of Benjamin is found in Saul. It's a little bit in King Saul of Gibeah. It's a whole lot in the Apostle Saul of Tarsus. Because when Saul of Tarsus says in Philippians 3 that he is of the tribe of Benjamin, and then goes on to say, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He cannot have been ignorant of his namesake failure to press on. Saul had not pressed on. And so now Saul says, I press on. I want you, as we go through the story of King Saul, to always keep in mind the Apostle Saul. I know we call him the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Saul. Because what you see in the Apostle Saul is the pressing on that King Saul failed to. Do, but then why does he say God gave them Saul for forty years? The Jewish tradition said he had reigned for forty years. Josephus recounts this in his Jewish Antiquities, uh, and actually I've I've given you in your in your bulletins uh, the the reason why we think forty years it, it, the re, forty years is is, a, is what's oftentimes used to refer to a generation. And you can see the generations in your bulletin, because there's there was Eli and then then uh, Samuel was a young man boy like maybe maybe teenager, around the time of the birth of Ichabod, which makes him basically the same generation as Ichabod's older brother Ahitub. and then Saul who is the next generation down, is the same generation as Ahijah and Ahimelech, the sons of Ahitub. And then David will be the same generation as Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. So if you want to know... Sort of, now, we don't have the particular dates for all of these people, so we don't know exactly how old all of them were. But the point being that the Jewish tradition is probably pretty accurate that Paul is using a standard 40 years as a way of saying that Saul reigned for a generation. God gave them Saul for 40 years, for a generation. And that's, uh, which we, it, it's not necessarily an exact number, but it's, it's, it's a generation. He reigned for that generation. Now, I, part of it is, I think, sometimes people try to take the numbers in, in the Bible and make and sort of use them to construct elaborate chronologies to get everything exactly right. I'm not convinced that that's what they're always doing. And sometimes numbers may even be used symbolically, which actually I think is what's happening in this account of the first battle uh, of that against the Philistines. Saul has at this point an army of 3,000. He's got 1,000 men with Jonathan and Gibeah, 2,000 with him in Michmash a little ways north. Uh, and we hear that Jonathan defeats the Philistine garrison at Geba, which provokes the Philistines to send their army and we're told that the Philistines mustered their army and came to Micmash with 30,000 chariots. Now, if you know anything about ancient warfare, 30,000 chariots would be the biggest chariot army ever raised on the planet. <laughs> so when it says 30,000 chariots, it's probably not intended literally. Uh, it's probably intended as a way of saying way too many chariots for us to fight against. Uh, so, when this large Philistine army invades, the people of Israel hide in the rocks, in the caves, in the tombs, in the cisterns. I mean, when you think about the way that the book of Revelation talks about you know, people hiding in the rocks and sort of calling on the hills to fall on them, this is the end of the world. This coming of this massive Philistine army is the end of the world for Israel. And yet, Saul is waiting for Samuel at Gilgal. And he's waiting. Now, Gilgal is, is across the hill country, and it's, it's, it's a fairly safe place to wait. It's going to take the Philistines a ways and a while to get from Michmash to Gilgal. But as seven days go by, he's getting nervous because Samuel said he was going to be here. Why does Samuel delay? Well, this is Saul's first real test since becoming king. Will he trust that God will go before him? Will he believe God's promises and wait upon the Lord? How often do we find ourselves in situations where we're like, okay, God, you're taking too long. Come on, God, Uh, get over here. Help me out. I need a little help here. Waiting on the Lord is hard, and remember, remember Gideon. Gideon had been given a reduced army in a very similar circumstance, and God had told him, "Send your men away." So he had only three hundred. Saul has six hundred. He's got twice as many as Gideon did. And if you remember the reading, I mean. Jonathan will actually be willing to go into battle with his bodyguard, with his armor bearer. That's it, just the two of us. If the Lord's with us, that's plenty. (laughs) Will Saul trust God? And Saul gets, he gets scared. I, I can sympathize with that. He's still wrong. Bring, Saul says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He didn't wait upon the Lord. He did not wait upon the word of the Lord. Kings had no business offering sacrifices. Saul has uh, usurped priestly authority. Now, it's, it's arguable that, it, that the priest was actually the one who did the offering But Samuel had said, wait for me. Wait. You may recall in our previous chapter, we heard that the people would wait for Samuel to get there in order to bless the offering because Samuel is the prophet. Samuel is the prophet who speaks the word of the Lord. And so you wait for the word of the Lord before offering the sacrifices. This is actually one of those texts that reminds us that the sacrifices without the word of the Lord, what is what is the good of a sacrifice without the word of the Lord? It's meaningless. Because without the word of the Lord, the sacrifice is just what? It's just saying, hey, you know, we're over here, God. But it's lacking what God has said. And so Samuel shows up and says, you have done foolishly. Notice, he shows up, at that moment. In other words. We're still on the seventh day. There was still time. If Saul had waited. Until the end of the seventh day. Samuel would have been there. But he didn't wait. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. With which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established. Your kingdom over Israel forever. I mean, Samuel seems to, seems to say. Is that sort of. This one time, this was the test. This was sort of like Adam and Eve in the garden. Will you believe me when, in the moment of temptation? Will Saul, this new man, this new Adam, will Saul succeed where Adam failed? Will Saul believe the promises? And the answer is, well, Saul's a lot. A lot like Adam. And now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Already before his first battle against the Philistines, Saul has failed. Already God is looking for a new king. A king after his own heart. You see, the, the problem with Israel is that Israel has not loved the Lord with all their heart. And the problem with Saul is that he's just like Israel. When you look at the life of Saul and the life of David, you'll see an awful lot of similarities between them in terms of they're they're great warriors. And they mostly obey God most of the time. Later in 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 our text, we'll hear Saul trying to be faithful to God's word. Why is it that Saul is not a man after God's own heart? And David is. Because when you look at their outward character of their lives, you're like, what's the real difference here? The real difference is that when David hears the word of the Lord, he does it. Now, sometimes he, I mean, he sins really badly. But then when the word of the Lord comes to him, he does what God says. He hears the word of the Lord and he does it. Saul has heard the word of the Lord. And he's like, I got a better idea. This is too important. We got to get this done now. And so, Saul, Saul now goes up against the Philistines. I mean, he, in a sense, the theme of the next seventeen chapters will be: Yes, God is looking for a new king, but Saul is still king. And so, these three companies of the Philistines are sent out from Mi'kmash to test the Israelite defenses, and. and There's not much defenses left. Now, verses 19 to 22 provide us with a sort of a parenthesis commenting on Israel's lack of swords and spears. We've we've seen before that the the story of of Joshua and and Judges was set against the backdrop of of the late Bronze Age collapse. All the major empires of the ancient world had collapsed. And now, at the end of the 11th century B.C., there's a new age. The age of iron is beginning and the Philistines are guarding the new technology carefully. Israel is outmanned and outgunned. They've got, they got no iron. If there's really not much iron in the hills of, of, of Israel, so you're not going to be able to mine it and without the, te- without the technology of blacksmithing, you can't really do much with it. So the Philistines carefully guard their technological advantage. Now, as we go through this story, I want you to see that what I'm doing, I'm I'm a blacksmith. The stories that we're going through are the spiritual iron that composes the word of God, which Paul tells us is the sword of the spirit. What are we doing as we go through all these stories about Saul and Jonathan and David? David. This is where that spiritual iron, is. Be- we are, we're, we're, we're hammering out that sword, which we are to wield as we seek to fight off our spiritual foes. Too often the church is left ill-equipped to fight our spiritual foes because Israel has but two swords, one for Saul, one for Jonathan. How can, how can a puny army of 600 ill-equipped soldiers fight off a mighty foe? only through the sword of the spirit wielded by faith. This is spiritual blacksmithing that we're doing. It's what we do, whether it's in shepherding groups, Bible studies, the preaching of the word, day-to-day discipleship and conversation together, sharpening our knowledge of the scriptures, how to use God's word in daily life. That's what we talk about as we study the scriptures. How can we know the word of God? It's, if you, just have, if you just have a lump of iron, that's not a sword. <laughs> how do we... The spiritual blacksmithing of... How do we craft this to be able to use... In spe- speaking the word of the Lord to the nations? Now, in chapter 14, we see the contrast... Between Jonathan and his father. In verse 3, we're told that the priest that at that time... Is Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother... Ah, remember Ichabod, the birth of Ichabod on the day that the the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Ichabod, whose name means no glory. The glory has departed. Ichabod, who at his birth, Shiloh, was deserted because the Ark of the Covenant is captured and gone. All of a sudden, we're told that Ahijah is here. Now, remember what Eli was told about how his sons would no longer be priests? Saul, the rejected king, has turned away from Samuel and is relying on the rejected priest, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. The Lord had told Eli his line would come to an end, and now his line has Allied itself to the rejected king. Rejected king, rejected priest, walking together. And then Jonathan walks away because Jonathan sees that his father is not walking in the right direction, so he takes his armor bearer to the Philistine garrison. Now, Jonathan is a faithful man, he probably would have been a great king. Listen to Jonathan. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He has no particular promise from the Lord, but he trusts in the Lord's might to deliver. And so he looks for opportunities to wield his sword. I only got two swords. So what can I do with the sword that God gave me? And Jonathan says, if they invite us up, we'll take it as a sign from God that he's going to give us, give them into our hands. Now, when the Philistines invite him to come up, many have wondered. Uh, so, don't they just see him coming, and the, before he can get over the edge, why would they just... Well, th- the names of the cliffs tell you these are these are very. Nobody expects you to climb the cliffs. When they say come up, they're expecting him to take the path. They're expecting him to go around the long way. So they're like, ha ha, come on up, and then they go back to their drinking and sort of like, oh, whenever he gets here. <laughs> and so he and his armor bearer instead just climb the cliff. Those of you who are rock climbers will appreciate that. And then when he gets up there, he and his armor very quickly killed 20 of them, throwing the whole Philistine camp into a panic. And God sends an earthquake along just to shake things up a little bit. And just as Jonathan was the one who had won the first victory in chapter 13, Jonathan is the one who instigates the victory in chapter 14 as well. Now, just a comment here. Sometimes you hear people today saying that if if you say maybe, perhaps, that's not really faith. If If you had faith, you would name it and claim it. But notice what Jonathan does. Jonathan does not have a thus saith the Lord. He doesn't know what God will do. Faith does not dictate to God what God must do. Faith believes God's promises and so trusts that he will act to deliver his people. But who knows what God will do to save his people from their enemies. You see, it's, it's not doubt to say, you know, you think about, think about Daniel's three friends who, they don't have a promise either. They say, God can deliver us. And they're like, maybe he won't. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your image was that lack of faith on their part? Oh no. They knew God could deliver them. They didn't know if he would, but they they acted in faith, trusting that God would deliver in his time and in his way, even if that means the resurrection of the body. And that's the confidence of faith, knowing that God will do I mean Jonathan Jonathan doesn't know what's going to be the outcome. His faith, though, is he is convinced this might be the time God does it. So let's go, buddy. Now, meanwhile the the watchmen of, of Saul see the Philistines dispersing in chaos in the Philistine camp, and then Saul notices that Jonathan's missing and, and then Saul brings the ark here, and now we hear that wait a second, they they brought the ark with them again? Really, Saul? This was a really bad idea last time and you think it's a good idea this time? But as the priest Ahijah is inquiring of the Lord, the disorder and tumult in the camp of the Philistines is increasing. And God never speaks through Ahijah. God never speaks through Ahijah. (laughs) Saul realizes that God is speaking loud and clear in the camp of the Philistines. And so he's like, withdraw your hand. I can see what God is saying without your help. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And the Philistines in their confusion start slaying each other. And part of that's because, verse 21 points out, there were Hebrews who had joined the Philistines. I mean, you could understand why. You've got this massive army. Okay, we're on their side. And then all of a sudden, God shows up and starts doing mighty deeds. And they're like, oh, wrong side. Okay. And so they come back over to God's side and say, which God used to now you have. A Hebrew contingent in the Philistine army, and so now Philistine Philistines are killing Philistines. And then you know, you got to remember in those days, it's not like it's not like you have just sort of everybody's you know, sort of wearing you know, wearing colors, saying you know, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Philistine. So Y'all you look the same out there. You're all equipped the same, and so it's like, which one are you? Oh, you're trying to kill me now. Okay, so when it, when it talks about an army thrown in the confusion, killing each other. It's because they've lost track of who's who and who's fighting whom. And so they're just like, somebody's coming at me. Okay, we're fighting. It's chaos. And so, and then all the men who had hidden themselves in the whole country of Ephraim are like, oh, well, (laughs) grab your sticks, grab your axes. Here we go, guys. But that's not the end of the story. As they start going to battle, in order to inspire his troops, Saul says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. We'll notice that Saul has a bad habit of turning deliverance into difficulty. He's not especially a brilliant tactician. So they find some honey in the forest, and no one will eat it, but Jonathan, who had not heard the oath, eats the honey, and his eyes brightened. Surprise, surprise. A little sugar rush. Great. When he's informed of the curse, his response reveals his disdain for his father's tactics. My father has troubled the land. They could have been strengthened for the battle, but now no wonder we're not pursuing the way we could have. And the trouble is then revealed as evening falls and the people are so faint with hunger that they pounce on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And This is where, but when Saul brings the stone and they the slaughter of the animals on the stone, that allows the blood to drain out. It's it's not that they're eating it raw. It's just that they're they're slaughtering it so quickly that the blood doesn't have time to drain, and so they're eating the flesh with the blood. And Leviticus had said, said, "Don't do this repeatedly." And so when Saul hears this, Saul's like, "Ah, we got to make sure we're following God." It's like, "Great, good job, Saul." <laughs> This, the, whole, the whole story of Saul is going to be like this where you're like yeah he gets it no he doesn't yeah he gets it no he doesn't it's, it's why we can all relate to Saul but they repent and they bring the meat to Saul at Aijalon on, on the border of the land controlled by the Philistines and, and there Saul builds his first altar and then Saul's like okay now we're strengthened let's, let's go at it again guys and the priest, the priest says, okay, wait, hold on. Let's make sure we're doing this right. Let's draw near to God here. And so Saul inquires of the Lord. And the Lord doesn't answer. And, and Saul understands what this means. Okay, there's a problem somewhere. There's sin in the camp. This has happened before in Israel's history. So, again, Saul gets it sometimes sometimes. <laughs> And so he calls the leaders together to figure out who sinned. And he even swears this ominous oath that it's even, even if, if, if Jonathan is the one at fault, the one at fault shall surely die. So, of course, the lot falls to Jonathan. And Jonathan confesses what he did and says, here I am, I will die. Jonathan is an honorable man. And he recognizes he is the one who has brought trouble on Israel. Therefore, he must die. And Saul had sworn an oath as Yahweh lives, and so he must fulfill his oath. But the people, with greater wisdom than their king, recognize that Saul's original oath was foolish, and the result of the oath is going to bring catastrophe. So they cancel the oath of their king. They ransom Jonathan from the, his father's oath. This is a strange. Story in many respects, because in terms of when, if you, if you try to try to go out the, so what should have what should they have done? Well, they recognized the hand of God. They recognized that God had in effect declared oaths, the, the Saul's oath and curse, invalid by using Jonathan as his instrument to deliver Israel. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. But the consequences of this remain. Saul was not able to pursue the Philistines any further. Saul's foolish oath nearly cost Jonathan his life, but the time that it took for the people to ransom Jonathan results in Saul's failure to pursue the Philistines. Again, failure to hear the word of the Lord and do it results in consequences for yourself and others. Now, verses 47 to 52 tell us that Saul continued to have great success against his enemies. He routed them on every side. And he was a mighty warrior who who went before his people to defend them from their enemies. He has three sons and two daughters. We'll hear more about them throughout the coming chapters. And the commander of his army was his cousin Abner. We'll hear a lot more about Abner. Remember, Abner is going to be a, a... He's he's Saul's cousin. But while he had success against the Philistines, he did not totally defeat them. There was hard fighting all his days. Already here, still in these first two years of Saul's reign, God has told him that his will be a limited regency. He's something of a custodial king, simply holding the throne for the man after God's own heart. If Saul had accepted that role, who knows what he might have accomplished. But Saul was not content. With the role that God gave him. Now, as we'll see, Jonathan will be entirely content. Jonathan will, will learn, not too long from now, that he will never be king. And he is content. Because he is a faithful Israelite. He wants what God wants. Many have commented on sort of the the tragedy of Jonathan's life. This, This wonderful man who would have made a great king who never got to be king. Dale Ralph Davis responds, Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. Never think that... uh, that Jonathan is a tragic figure. He is a noble figure, an honorable man who does what God sets before him to do. Saul of Tarsus, the namesake and tribesman of Israel's first king, was content to be but the messenger and herald of David's great son. Jesus is the king after God's own heart who has established his throne in the heavens. And so we should be content with the portion that he gives us, in whatever portion that may be. And yet, to those who humbly submit to his lordship, he gives the right to become children of God. We'd be happy to be servants in Jesus' house, but instead he calls us brothers. He makes us sons of God, partakers in his own inheritance. Jesus gives to us a share in his life that we might share in him who loved us and gave himself for us. Truly, a life is not tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. Help us as we walk before you to to trust you and to believe you and to wait upon you that we might not be hasty in trying to accomplish your kingdom by our means, but may may we be content with the means that you have called us to, with the, the things that you have given us to do, that we might wait upon you and believe that you will continue the work that you have begun in Jesus Christ, that you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, that we might be conformed to his likeness more and more, trusting that in each situation you bring to us that we can we can rely upon your mighty power that you can deliver whether by many or by few and so you can continue and you will continue your mighty work of bringing your kingdom to throughout the nations so lord help us and strengthen us that in our several callings, in the places where you've put us, in the relationships you've given us, in the, in, the, in, the, in the work that you've given us to do, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray in his name. Amen.